On today's episode of the Keto Camp Podcast, we bring back for the third time, Dr. Jason Fung. you say that it's all about calories, then what you're saying is that broccoli is as fattening as cookies, right? 100 calories of broccoli is as fattening as 100 calories of cookies. And that's ridiculous. Nobody gets fat eating broccoli. It doesn't happen, right? If you eat nothing but broccoli, I'm almost certain you won't get fat. Right, so it's silly. And if you told your your grandmother, oh yeah, broccoli is as fattening as cookies, she'd say, "What did you go to university for? Like you're so stupid. Like get your head out of your ass, right? Of course, broccoli is not as fat. So all we're really saying is that certain foods are more fattening than other foods. That is, cookies are more fattening than broccoli." We have access to ancient healing strategies such as ketosis, fasting, and carnivore. And on the Keto Camp Podcast, we are determined to deliver the science to you. We bring in the thought leaders in this space to have extraordinary conversations so you could apply it and change your life. Your body was built to thrive. Your body is capable of healing as long as you identify the interference and remove it. I believe you are a masterpiece because you are a piece of the master. My name is Ben Azadi. I'm the best-selling author of Keto Flex, and I want to thank you for spending part of your day with me. Hey, Keto Camper, Ben Azadi here, the host of the Keto Camp Podcast. I am super excited to be with you today. Thank you so much for pressing play. You can learn more about me over at benazadi.com. Dr. Jason Fung is a great friend and mentor of mine. And I love our conversations. Uh, The last few years, it's been very difficult to get Dr. Fung on an interview. He's not doing many, rightfully so. He's a busy guy, but we got him. We brought him back for the third time. And we had a fun conversation. We start the conversation out with cutting calories, counting calories. He's one of the best to debunk the myth that if you want to lose weight, you just got to eat less and move more. He's got some great analogies for you. He really loves talking about this topic. You're going to see he goes deep into why cutting calories is a stupid way to lose weight and why it's all about hormones. We'll get into insulin. He's going to explain and teach you exactly how insulin works and why keto and fasting are two powerful ways to lower insulin. We'll talk about a damaged metabolism and why you can rebuild it and why it's not about willpower. Instead, it's about your appetite. He'll discuss why the most important question to ask is whether you are storing energy or burning energy. Then we'll talk about the facts, the untold truth around type 2 diabetes and how to reverse it for good. We'll talk about the new medications that are out there, some of the older medications, what it's doing, what are the pros and cons. We'll get into some different fasting techniques to really force insulin down and reverse type 2 diabetes and insulin resistance from 16-hour fast to 36-hour fast and how to build those fasting schedules and that fasting muscle. We'll discuss working out while fasting, good or bad idea, different liquids while fasting, what can you have. He's a big fan of tea, having tea when you fast, and so much more. There's also a Q&A at the end as well with some of the students that I had. You're going to love the conversation with Dr. Jason Fung. I am excited to bring him on. Before I do, I want to get to today's Apple Podcast rating and review of the day from (laughs) C-O-H-H-C-C-G-Z, titled, Change Can Happen, Five-Star Review. As a Christian wife and mother, I've struggled with some raunchy podcasts, and it was definitely a God thing when I found you. Real, honest, open communication with topics that really matter. What I like most is feeling stronger physically, mentally, and emotionally every day after listening through your library. Thanks for all you do. Keep it up. I'm starting the 511 rule today for 30 days. Hashtag blessed by keto camp. I love the hashtag. Thank you for listening to the show. 
I hope the 511 rule is going well for you. It works phenomenal when you do it consistently. If you don't know what the 511 rule is, it's a seven day Keto Flex protocol I outline in my book, Keto Flex. You could get Keto Flex, by the way, over at ketoflexbook.com. Dr. Jason Fung endorsed the book along with other incredible thought leaders. Uh, ketoflexbook.com. Thank you for leaving the show rating and review. If you haven't left the Keto Camp podcast a rating or a review yet, please do so on whatever platform you're listening from today. If you want to watch the video interview with Dr. Jason Fung and myself and all Keto Camp podcast interviews, that could be found on our YouTube channel, which is youtube.com slash keto camp. Without further ado, let's get into today's conversation with Dr. Jason Fung. Dr. Jason Fung, MD, turned his passion for disease prevention into a groundbreaking, clinically proven, and natural treatment for type 2 diabetes and obesity, intermittent fasting, combined with low-carb, healthy, high-fat diet. He is, I call, the father of fasting, an early proponent of the now-popular fasting lifestyle. Dr. Fung is often called the founder of intermittent fasting, exactly, and is regularly cited to provide scientific legitimacy for a diet that can seem outlandish to the unfamiliar. In 2016, Dr. Fung published one of the first popular science books to recommend intermittent fasting for weight loss called The Obesity Code, which went on to sell over 2 million copies worldwide. Next, he published The Diabetes Code, which lays out his foundational approach to type 2 diabetes prevention and reversal. A New York Times best-selling author, Dr. Fung has written numerous other books on disease prevention, including The PCOS Plan and The Cancer Code. Here's Dr. Jason Fung. So I'm going to show this to you, Dr. Fung. You, you may or may not remember this photo. <laughs> this is in 2018, first time I met you at Dr. Pompa's conference. This is actually the same event that I joined Dr. Pompa and now I get to work with him. But we met and uh, we both look the same, meaning I think what we're teaching is working because we look the same. <laughs> uh, Dr. Fung, you all know who he is. Um, he is a legend. Uh, I call him the father of fasting. I'm not going to even read this bio because I'm going to just speak from the heart. Dr. Fung's teachings and lessons and books and YouTube videos, and it's sprinkled over every single thing that I teach. Analogies that I use, sprinkled all over my book, all over my videos, everything that I'm teaching you all, know that Dr. Fung has his fingerprints all over that. I've learned so much from, from this guy and I'm just so grateful for him. Uh, Megan Ramos is a dear friend of mine, the fasting method, everything that he's been able to do. And he's making a special exception to join us today. He doesn't do a lot of these interviews. He's really busy, and I'll make sure he gets off in time today. But without further ado, I'm going to bring on the man, Dr. Jason. Hey, Jason. Hey, Ben. Great to be here. Great to see you, man. How's everything going with you? Very good. Very good. Thank yeah. you for making the exception and being here. We have a lot of students who are excited to see you, and let's just get this conversation started. Here's where I want to start. We've talked a lot about keto so far and low-carb, high-fat diet and what that does, and we haven't gotten too much into fasting, and you're the perfect person to teach that. You're the father of fasting. So the question is this. When people think about fasting, a lot of people in the fitness space specifically, they say fasting only works because you're in a calorie deficit. So I'd love for you to teach us why it's not about being in a calorie deficit and there's a whole host of benefits that come with fasting that you do not get by simply cutting calories. Yeah, this whole idea of calories, it's sort of, you know, to me it's very simplistic sort of thinking, you know, because really it doesn't take into account the sort of body storage capacity. Right. It's really looking only at sort of what goes in, what comes out. Right. But there's actually three components. If you think about, you know, the energy balance equation, which is body fat, remember, body fat's a storage form of energy. So, uh, which food energy is calories. So, it's calories in is what you take in, cal calories out is metabolic rate, and there's uh, body fat, which is your body fat stores. So everybody sort of takes that to mean that if you simply reduce your calories in, that you're going to reduce body fat. But that's not true at all. Remember, there's three variables here. And if you change one variable, either of the other two can change in order to balance, right? It's a balanced equation. People talk about this caloric deficit. A caloric deficit can never exist because 
there's three variables that need to balance. That's the balanced equation. So you reduce calories in, okay, so you eat less. And everybody says, well, that means you must lose body fat. No, it doesn't. You could lose body fat or you could reduce metabolic rate, right? So there's three variables. There's the sort of body fat, energy in, energy out. So you reduce energy in, either you lose body fat, which is storage, or you reduce the amount that you burn. The thing about it is that if you lose body fat, that's what you're going for. If you reduce metabolic rate, everybody knows that's bad because you don't feel so good. You're not burning that much energy, right? So if you're burning 1,500 calories instead of 2,000 calories, well, you're going to be more cold, you're going to be you know, less energy, that kind of thing. So the question is, if you simply cut your calories, which is the standard advice, we have data, we have research studies going back like 60, 70, 80 years, which tells you that if you simply focus on calories and reduce your calories, what almost always happens is that your energy expenditure goes down. So you eat less, but you burn less. And body fat doesn't change much. And that's been the sort of consistent... Um, data from the studies, there's probably like 40 or 50 studies showing that exactly. And it's not like the research contradicts the real world experience. Like honestly, for somebody who's trying to lose weight, how many people haven't tried counting calories? So true. Like, does it actually work? Yeah. Maybe short like, term. Short term, it works for a few months, and then it always comes back because yeah. your energy expenditure goes down. So what happens, of course, is that you start off eating 2,000 calories, burning 2,000. Now you want to lose weight. So you eat 1,500, lose a bit of weight. But your body takes your energy expenditure down to 1,400. Okay, And so you're cold, you're tired, you're hungry, and even on the 1,500 calories, you're gaining weight. And then somebody says, you're not sticking to your diet. You don't have enough willpower. It's like, no, you're on the right diet. The diet that you chose, which is focused on calories, was completely wrong because all that happened was that you lowered your energy expenditure. And again, virtually every single study in the literature has shown the exact same thing. If you simply focus on calories, then you're not going to get it. And the question is, okay, why is that? And, and the answer is mostly hormones. So remember, there's three compartments here. There's energy in, so calories in, there's calories out, and there's body fat. So think of it this way. Suppose you have a coal-fired power plant, right? That's You need energy to burn, so you have energy coming in. So that's your deliveries of coal that come in. Right, that's energy. That's mm-hmm. that's that's like your calories. You have to burn it. So in the power plant, that's what you burn. And you have a storage system, a shed where you can store coal. Right. So when you're eating, you detect that because you know that a shipment is coming in. You will take this shipment of coal and you'll either burn it or you're going to store it. Okay. But that's the same as calories. When you eat, insulin and other nutrient sensors are going to go up. Okay, so you take 500 calories of food, insulin goes up, and your body says you can either store it or you can burn it. What you cannot do is take the stored energy out and burn it. So if you have a coal shipment coming in, you can put it in the shed, you can burn it. But what you cannot do is take coal from the shed and burn it. Why? Because your body is not stupid, right? If energy is coming in, you want to either use it or store it. You're not going to take your stored energy. And then what's it going to do with this food energy that's mm-hmm. coming in if you're using the, the coal that's in your shed? What are you going to do with this big big shipment, You know, these two truckloads of coal coming in? So your body's not stupid either. So when your food is coming in, you cannot burn body fat. That's We've known this for like 50 plus years, yes. right? If insulin is high, you cannot burn fat. We say insulin inhibits lipolysis. That's first-year medical school stuff. Mm-hmm. In other words, if your insulin is high, you can't burn fat. You cannot burn body fat. It is impossible to burn body fat. Are there any hormones outside of insulin that store fat? Um, that's the main one for metabolism. 
And there's all kinds of things that are going to affect your insulin. There's other hormones like cortisol that are going to play a role and so on, but they, they, they do it in a slightly different way. When we're just talking about the diet, the main nutrient sensor is that. There's also mTOR and AMPK, which are both nutrient sensors as well. They're a bit more complicated. They're more to do with protein is the main thing for mTOR. And that's people are more worried about that in terms of aging and in terms of cancer more than uh, obesity. For weight loss and so on, and type 2 diabetes, most people are concerned about insulin. But the whole point is that uh, if you think about it this way, and your goal is to empty out that storage shed, you need to make sure your insulin stays low. It doesn't matter how much energy is coming in or out. If you keep that insulin level high, you simply cannot burn the body fat. So again, 2,000 calories, think, think about it this way. Okay, so 2,000 calories coming in, 2,000 calories going out. You want to lose weight. Now you do intermittent fasting or you do keto or something like that. Your insulin level stays low. So when you get down to 1,500 calories, then your body can release 500 calories from its stores. Why? Because you let the insulin go down. Yeah. You cannot release those stores if it's high. You've basically put, you know, close the door on that shed. You can't get the energy out. It must stay there. So all you're trying to do by changing the hormones is allow it to release the stores of body fat. If you have like, you know, body fat to lose, you might have 100,000, 200,000 calories of energy sitting on your body. So you need to release it. And you can't do that if you don't have, if, if, if you keep your insulin levels very high, which is a problem. So you eat, you know, all this low fat food, you eat 10 times a day, you're keeping your insulin levels high, you never release your body fat. So if you eat 1500 calories, but keep your insulin levels high, you have no access to body fat stores. So therefore, in order to balance this equation, 1500 calories coming out, 2,000 calories going out, sorry, 1,500 coming in, 2,000 going out, but you can't make up the extra from your body fat, then what's going out must go down to 1,500. Mm -hmm. That's how you wreck your metabolism is by counting calories and ignoring the hormones that are produced. And that's why it fails. And like I said, it's completely consistent with all the research of the last you know, 80 years. And it's completely... <laughs> consistent with the experience of millions of people. Yeah. Like if counting calories was so successful, then I wouldn't be talking about it because you and I would just count calories and we'd be done with it. And every so would everybody else. Mm -hmm. There wouldn't be an industry talking about what we're talking about. But there is because it fails for almost everybody. Like what always gets me about these people who talk about, hey, it's all about calories, it's all about calories. Like, what? You think nobody's ever heard of that before? <laughs> <laughs> Do you? Like, like you think nobody's counted calories in their life and you're bringing something so new and brilliant to the game? <laughs> it's like, come on. It's the oldest trick in the book. It fails for everybody. Everybody's done it. It's failed for everybody. It's failed throughout history. Every research study has failed. And yet you think you're so brilliant talking about calorie restriction. I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> it's so true. That's, it's, that's it's, the dumbest thing. Like, you think we're idiots. We're not idiots. Like, you treat people like idiots, but it's like, yeah. you know, we treat people like adults. Yeah. And the calories people always treat people like idiots. It's like, yeah. I don't know why people even listen to them. Yeah, I agree. It does. It just does people a big disservice. It distracts them from what really matters, which is cell health, cell and hormone health, and how that connects to your cells, how insulin, uh, the sensitivity of those insulin receptor sites, like that should be the focus. Figure out why are your insulin receptor sites desensitized? What's causing inflammation around those cells? So in your scenario with the 1500 calories, let's say somebody drops it to 1500, but their insulin is elevated throughout the day, it's almost impossible to tap into that body fat. That could come from primarily eating high carbs or eating frequently, correct? Yeah. And also as you get further and further down the process of insulin resistance and hyperinsulinemia, 
then you have to understand that the, the insulin level may stay high independent of the diet, right? That's what insulin resistance is mm-hmm. because you're trying to get the glucose in. It's, it's really a state of hyperinsulinemia. And the reason fasting is very beneficial is because it's probably the most effective way to lower your insulin because you can't go lower than zero, right? You can't eat less than zero calories. So therefore, it is the most effective dietary way. I mean, obviously, exercise has a role and all this sort of stuff. Nobody denies that. But if we're just talking about diet, then it is the most effective way to get that insulin level down. And, And it's all about, it's not about the calories necessarily. It's about the hormones. Like everybody you know, futz is about, oh, 200 calories here and cut 300 calories there. It's like, but there's 100,000 yeah. sitting on your body. Oh, so, true. you know, or, or people are like, don't count your calories. You know, don't cut your calories. It's like, you must eat enough, right? I hear that. It's like, well, what about the 200,000 calories of body fat? Like, you must eat 2,000 calories. You must eat that extra 500. But there's 200,000 sitting in storage, right? It's like your storage shed ha- is is so full that it's bursting, and yet you p- tell people that you have to eat, you know, keep putting more in, like eight times a day. Like, how does that make any sense? It doesn't. It, it's stupid. Hey, when was the last time you bit into a juicy burger or a perfectly cooked steak and thought to yourself, this is the best thing I've ever tasted? If it's been a while, it's probably because most meat products are conventionally raised, which not only affects the flavor profile, but significantly diminishes the beneficial nutrients and minerals. And believe it or not, even products that are labeled as grass-fed or ethically raised, to make you think they're high quality, are often finished on grain or in factory farms, which is why I am so excited to share something with you today that will not only help you avoid the hormones, antibiotics, and pesticide residues that diminish the taste of conventionally raised meat, but could also save you nearly $1,000 over the next year on your grocery bill. And the best part, this may be the best tasting thing you've had in a long time. So what the heck am I talking about? I'm talking about Wild Pastures Meat Delivery. They provide the highest quality meats from small, regenerative, family-run farms here in the United States that prioritize sustainability and animal welfare. Their beef is 100% grass-fed. Their pork and poultry are pasture-raised, something you won't find anywhere in the grocery store, resulting in meats that are not only healthier for you, but also better for the environment. One of the reasons why me and my fiance Natasha loves wild pastures is that we can opt out out of supporting harmful conventional farming practices and instead support small family-run farms without spending a fortune. And the convenience doesn't stop there. They offer delivery straight to your door so you can enjoy delicious, high-quality meats without even leaving your house. No matter where you are in the lower 48 states, Wild Pastures has got you covered. Not only is this the most convenient way to get your meat products, but Wild Pasture meats are better for you nutritionally and they're higher in the total nutrients, phytonutrients, antioxidants, key fatty acids, vitamins, minerals, proteins, and amino acids. And today, for keto campers, for a limited time, you can get 20% off every box plus free shipping for life and... off your first box. This is a crazy deal and I hope you take advantage of it. So make the switch to Wild Pastures today and save nearly $1,000 on your grocery bill while feeling healthier and enjoying the best tasting meats of your life. All you need to do is go to the link in the podcast notes down below. Everything is already applied. All you got to do is click that link, customize your order, and you'll have some delicious, healthy tasting meats very soon. Head to the podcast notes down below, click the link, enjoy your wild pastures. Okay, let's get right back to this episode. When I used to own my CrossFit gym, uh, people, the members at my CrossFit gym, and this happens to this day, they were so infatu- infatuated with those calorie trackers, meaning I did a 60-minute CrossFit workout and I burned 700 calories. But that is very inaccurate because they probably burned, I don't know, 100, 200 calories. It's not accounting for what they would have burned if they just sat on, on the couch, right? Their basal metabolic, right? It adds it both yeah. and they think they burned that total of 700, but it's really much less than that. It's false. Yeah, it's false. And also it's almost irrelevant really because when you think about it, 
you know, over the day, like just the energy you need for your heart, your lung, your liver is really the majority of your energy expenditure. So even if you do exercise that day, unless you're doing sort of many hours a day sort of thing, then for the most part, you still need to change the diet in order to make a difference. And, um, you know, all we're saying basically, you know, in terms of calories, and I always think that this is such a strange, strange thing. So if you say that it's all about calories, then what you're saying is that broccoli is as fattening as cookies, right? 100 calories of broccoli is as fattening as 100 calories of cookies. And that's ridiculous. Nobody gets fat eating broccoli. It doesn't happen, right? If you eat nothing but broccoli, I'm almost certain you won't get fat, right? So it's silly. And if you told your your grandmother, (laughs) oh yeah, broccoli is as fattening as cookies, she'd say, what did you go to university for? Like, you're so stupid. Like, get your head out of your ass, right? Of course, broccoli is not as fat. So all we're really saying is that certain foods are more fattening than other foods. That is, cookies are more fattening than broccoli. That's it. That's all we're saying. Like, it's nothing sort of counterintuitive. Like, the calories people always make it sound like we're saying something really stupid. It's like, no, that's all we're saying. There are reasons why certain foods are more fattening than other foods. And that's just life. If you actually live, you, you know this is true. I mean, there's multiple reasons why. But, you know, it, it always strikes me as so strange that the calories people are so sure of themselves that they think they're so smart, you know, trotting out this 60 year old failed strategy of calorie counting. You know, it's like, Mm. you know, there are 10 year olds who are counting calories because of those people, right? Instead of eating nutritious foods, instead of saying, okay, we need to cut out cookies because cookies are fattening, Mm -hmm. or we need to cut out sugar because sugar is fattening more than the calorie itself. Like, we don't need to cut out fish, but we do need to cut out sugar. Common sense. Common sense. Yeah. But something that the calories people will completely disagree with because they'll say, no, if you're being a purist, fish equally fattening to ice cream and brownies, right? Mm -hmm. Those are the people who say you can eat brownies for dinner. You can eat two brownies instead of a steak. Mm -hmm. Same thing. It's not the same thing. It's stupid. It is stupid. And again, (laughs) the problem with it is that it works short term. And that's where they get away with it because people start doing that, cutting their calories, and they start to just look at the scale. And then, yeah, short term, you're going to see it go down. But to Dr. Funk's point, your metabolism goes down to match that over time. And then you're cold all the time, eventually thyroid issues. Now, if somebody gets to that point where they've been extreme dieting for five, seven, 10 years, and their metabolism is wrecked and they want to rebuild their metabolism can they do that no matter how much damage they've done yeah absolutely and again the point is that your body has you know we're talking about the metabolic rate because people always assume that it's all about willpower and stuff and Mm -hmm. the thing is that if you think about calories in minus calories out so everybody thinks about it as, well, what you eat and how much you exercise, right? Those are under your conscious control. And that's why people do fat shaming and stuff because they say, oh, well, it shows that you have no willpower, that kind of thing. It's actually quite destructive, this whole calories idea. Mm -hmm. And the thing is that it's very superficial thinking. It's sort of first level thinking. It's like what you eat and how much you exercise. Think about it on a deeper level. How much do you eat and how often you eat? Well, that's controlled by how hungry you are. That's not under your conscious control. You can decide not to eat, but you can't decide to be less hungry. Same thing with your energy expenditure, calories out. Most of your calories out is going to be dependent on how much your brain, your heart, your liver, your lungs do. So again, you can't control that. You can't decide to increase your metabolic rate. 
It's under control of hormones. Same with hunger. It's under the control of your hormones. And there are ways to adjust them, sure, but it's not about willpower, right? And that's, that's the whole thing. So once you get past that sort of very superficial sort of first-order thinking of calories, you know, what you eat and how much you exercise, you realize that it's all about your appetite, yeah. right? And that's why things like Ozempic are so effective. I mean, we can debate whether or not it's good for you, but mm-hmm. there's no denying that it's effective. It's not effective because of anything other than it reduces your appetite. If you don't feel like eating, you don't eat, and therefore your body's going to burn what's stored away. That's pretty simple. And then people say it's all about calories. Well, it's not about the calories. It's it's, It's what's behind those calories. Why are people eating those too many calories, right? It's not that you're eating more calories in compared to calories out. It's why, right? So that's the deeper question. And there's so many people stuck at that first level of, oh, it's just a matter of calories in minus calories out. It's sort of like if you said, oh, okay, well, if you want to get rich, you want more money coming in than going out. Hey, I just solved world poverty. (laughs) Earn more than you spend. Doesn't give you the solution. (laughs) Yeah. It's like, but how are you going to earn more? How are you going to spend less? That's the real question. And so you get things like, well, if you get a college education, you're on average going to earn more. So therefore, education is going to lead to sort of less poverty in certain situations or getting a, a trade like a plumber or something, right? If you get a trade, you're less likely because you have now the ability to earn more. But then somebody might say, it doesn't, you know, education does nothing for you outside of money. So just earn more. That's it, right? Mm-hmm. That's the same argument that the calories people have. If you have a strategy to reduce your energy intake or a strategy to keep your energy expenditure high, like keeping insulin down, that's getting that deeper level of understanding, not simply money in minus money out, earn more than you spend, hey, I solve more poverty sort of thing. And anybody who disagrees with me is stupid, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. that's, it, it always strikes me as so funny that the people who always push for the calories I, I always think that they're so brilliant. Because I always think that you guys are so, have such superficial knowledge, but you don't realize that you have such superficial knowledge. <laughs> Correct. You're not getting behind the curtain, you're not understanding the reasons why people might eat more, right? So same thing with alcohol, for example, right? It's like alcoholism. Just don't drink alcohol. Hey, I served world world alcoholism. Thank you. Where's my Nobel Prize, right? (laughs) It's like, it's alcohol in minus alcohol out, (laughs) right? That's the first law of thermodynamics of alcohol. Solve the whole problem, right? I'm so smart, right? That's that's the equivalent of the calories argument. It's it's so stupid. It's so stupid. (laughs) Like, why are people drinking? Maybe they have post-traumatic stress disorder. If you don't do counseling, you're never going to solve the alcoholism, right? Mm -hmm. Because you haven't dealt with the reason why they're drinking. As opposed to saying, don't drink. Your problem is you drink too much, don't drink. That's the calories problem. Your problem is that you're eating too many calories, don't eat so many calories, solve your problem, pay the lady, right? It's like, come on, you're at such a low level of understanding that every time I hear somebody talking about calories, I always think, boy, they just really haven't thought about the problem very much. And the Correct. fact that it's it's already such a failed treatment, right? It's, it's already everywhere. So if you're just telling people that the standard treatment is the right treatment, you're basically saying to people, you're either stupid or you have no willpower, right? Mm-hmm. So again, treating people like they're idiots. Like, I don't think most people are idiots. I actually think that people are very intelligent and have a lot of willpower. I don't think they have any less willpower or more willpower than they did 50 years ago. I think the problem is that the calories people basically have have sort of brainwashed everybody to thinking that this is the sort of be-all and end-all. And it's threatening, right? If they hear a different opinion, well, then you know, they're professors of this or that. And that's why they, they, they want to keep it that way, right? Yep. 
But it always strikes me as like, this is why, why nobody listens to them because they already know instinctively mm-hmm. that it's wrong. The whole focus on calories, I'm not saying calories are completely irrelevant. They are still relevant as a, as a physical unit of energy, just like your loads of coal. That's still important. But the more important reason is why are so many loads of coal coming in? Are you storing it versus are you burning it, right? Correct. That's the more important question. Not that this, it's, it's simply one facet of everything and a relatively unimportant facet of it. Mm-hmm. But you know, the other people tend to say that it's basically everything, just like alcohol in minus alcohol out, all about the alcoholism. Counseling, stupid, right? Forget about counseling. Forget about treatment for PTSD. It only works to the extent that you stop drinking alcohol, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yes, I it's, suppose so. <laughs> it's very shallow. And um, when, when I first started out in the health space, 2008, I was teaching that. I was teaching my, my clients to you know, eat less and move more. And then I figured out it's not working for them. They're getting worse over the long term. So I stopped teaching that. So whenever I make a video about talk, talking about insulin, talking about hormones, I'll get these calorie counters commenting saying, it's just eat less, move more. And I'll, I'll comment back sometimes and I'll say, you know, I pray you catch up very, very soon, like, like I did. Right? I, yeah. I catch up because to your point, Dr. Funk, it's such an old school way of thinking. It's, it's enough is enough. And the, most of the people promoting that are people in the like they're fitness influencers and they're bodybuilders, they're super fit. It's not the average person. 88% plus of the average American is metabolically unhealthy. Like That's not going to work for anybody, but especially not those who are already metabolically challenged. That's the people that we see. That's the people that want our help. That's the people that are on this live stream right now. Yeah. And, and a lot of those people who are the most vocal about it are those fitness people who see their thinness and stuff as proof that they're better than you, right? That's their proof that I'm there to them. They're like, I'm thin and you're fat. Therefore, I am better than you because it's all about willpower. And therefore, because I'm thin, I have more willpower than you do. I'm better than you. Right. So it's, it's easy to see why they believe it so fervently because it puts them at that sort of the pinnacle. Like I'm the greatest. And the whole problem is because of willpower and therefore I'm at the pinnacle and you're at the bottom. So mm-hmm. they feel great about themselves. And anybody who challenges that is like, well, you know, is, is, a, is a threat, right? It's, it, but, you know, I can see why they believe it so much. It's, it's, it's sad in a way because it doesn't help everybody else, right? It, it doesn't, you know, it's not useful for people. And people get sick because of it. They get type 2 diabetes, they get weight problems, cause all these other problems, and you don't have anybody helping you. Like the sort of main academic medicine is all about calories. It's, it's such a sad sort of, to me, it's such a sad state of affairs, honestly, but it is what it is. Well, the conversations like this help to empower people. And I think you know the majority of those on here have done that calories in versus calories out and they've seen that it fails and they're looking for something else. That's why they're here. Hey, Keto Camper. There's something that I do every single day to supercharge my mitochondria to help with inflammation and soreness from a workout. And that is the use of red light therapy. This is called photobiomodulation. And there's a ton of research that shows the benefits of near-infrared and red light therapy. The red light therapy that I use is from Bon Charge. I simply use it 10 to 20 minutes per day. It has both near-infrared and red light. And every single day when I use this, I feel ready to take on my day. So whether you're dealing with gut pain, joint inflammation, or you want to just supercharge your mitochondria, get your hands on a quality red light therapy device. And I highly recommend the one from Bon Charge. They hooked you all up for being a Keto Camp podcast listener with a 15% off coupon code. All you need to do, check out this product and all the wonderful products they have available is to go to bondcharge.com slash ketocamp and use the coupon code ketocamp at checkout to save 15% off your order. We will drop that link and coupon code in the podcast notes. Go check it out and let's get right back to this episode. So let's transition to type 2 diabetes. I would like to ask you this question. Would you agree that with type 2 diabetes, that's actually not the reason why 
people die, meaning type 2 diabetes rarely kills people. It's the disease is the degeneration of type 2 diabetes that leads to the death. Would that be an accurate statement? Yeah. I mean, you can almost always control the blood sugar of type 2 diabetes, but the type 2 diabetes contributes to heart disease and strokes and all kinds of other things and cancer and so on. So it leads to other diseases that will kill you. But the underlying sort of the root cause of a lot of those problems is the diabetes, right? If you get the diabetes, you're more likely to have the heart disease, which gives you the heart attack, which gives could then kill you, right? Yeah. So it is, it is in a sense, still a, a major contributor, even though the end, you know, event is is not diabetes. It's kidney disease or heart disease or any of these other diseases. There's a lot. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So, on average, somebody is getting their annual checkup with their doctor. And once a year, they get their A1T tested and some basic lab markers. On average, how long does it take between the development of diabetes to the point where their doctor says, oh, oh, your, your A1C is, let's say, 5.9 or 6.4. You actually have type 2 diabetes. How long does it take? Meanwhile, every year, they're progressing towards type 2 diabetes. They have hyperinsulinemia. How long does it take on average for that diagnosis to be made in the mainstream setting? You know, it's quite variable. So there are a lot of people who hang out with uh, A1Cs like in the 6, 6.2 range, right? And it's variable. Some people will go immediately up and some people just stay at that level for decades or more. It's very variable. Um, You know, once you develop the type 2 diabetes, you can start to chart how long it takes to develop the high blood pressure and the, the protein in the urine and all that sort of stuff. It's often 5, 10, 15 years still between getting the type 2 diagnosis, initial diagnosis, and and disease. But again, it's influenced by a lot of things like genetics, but also the higher your sugars, the more quickly it will likely progress. And it's not that the sugars are damaging, it's the type 2 diabetes is worse, that's all. The higher, it's a good reflection of how bad you're underlying. And then, you know, type 2 diabetes is a relatively simple disease to understand. Your body basically has too much sugar and it can't store anymore. So it spills out in the blood. Once you start measuring it in the blood, you know that your storage capacity for sugar is exceeded and that's going to cause damage. So what do you do? You, You either put less sugar in or you try and increase the sugar coming out, right? Putting less sugar in is a low carbohydrate diet. Letting your body burn off the sugar is intermittent fasting. Mm. Both of those, and there's been recent studies, um, Dr. David Unwin in the UK, for example, puts all his type 2 diabetics on a low-carb diet. He put almost 50% of his type 2 diabetics into a drug-free remission with, type, with the low-carb diet. Like a stunning number of people Amazing. can reverse their type 2 diabetes. And when I wrote the Diabetes Code in 2018, I basically made the argument that, again, um, at the time, people were saying that type 2 diabetes was a chronic and progressive disease. I said, that's stupid. It doesn't make any sense at all. If you lose weight, your diabetes usually gets better. So how are you saying it's chronic and progressive? It's reversible. Because if it gets better, it's a reversible disease. Mm -hmm. So once you know that, you have to say, how are you going to reverse this disease? Mm -hmm. But losing weight is a good start, and there's different reasons why. But, you know, again, that's your root cause there. It's your diet and your lifestyle. So taking drugs doesn't change your diet or lifestyle. It's not going to do anything for you. And if, you, if all you do is treat it with drugs, you're using drugs to treat a dietary disease without fixing the diet. So therefore, because you never fix the diet, you think it's chronic and progressive, mm-hmm. but it never was. It was just a big lie. Mm-hmm. And therefore, in fact, uh, the, the American Diabetes Association changed that. They got rid of the message that it's chronic and progressive, and they've replaced it with criteria for remission. So that just happened in 2021, I think, right? It's and about it was, time. Yeah, it was all because it's like I kept saying, it's stupid. Mm-hmm. It's dumb. It's obviously untrue. Like you can prove it in two seconds that it was an untrue statement. And yet it was on the American Diabetes Association site for like 10 years prior to that. That's right. That's what I looked at when my dad was going through his type 2 diabetes. And he ended up losing his life because you know I, I got the false data 
I believe that it was chronic and progressive. And unfortunately, my dad lost his life because of it. But that's, we know that's not the case. You've reversed that type 2 diabetes in several patients. Medication with type 2 diabetes. And I'm sure you've seen this before. I've seen it. And um, it, it bothers me a lot because people who have type 2 diabetes, who are taking insulin or metformin, whatever it is, they believe that they could still have their cookies or their donut as long as they take enough insulin to drop the glucose down. But where is the sugar going if they're not actually changing their lifestyle, but just taking meds? Yeah. So the older meds, insulin and uh, so on, they don't do anything in terms of protecting the organs. Remember that diabetes doesn't kill you directly. It kills you because it you know, you get heart attack and so on. Mm -hmm. So that's called end organ damage, right? So they've looked for many, many years. They've done studies of metformin and insulin, and these are the older medications. And they do not provide any organ protection at all. That is, if your blood sugar is through the roof, or if you're taking insulin and your blood sugar is perfect, those two people so one of them doesn't take any insulin, sugar's through the roof. One of them takes lots of insulin and has perfect sugar numbers. Both of them will suffer heart attacks at the same rate. And the question is why? And it's again, sugar is, your body has too much sugar and insulin doesn't get rid of the sugar. So what happens to the sugar when you take insulin? Well, the insulin takes the sugar from the blood and shoves it into your liver. Okay, so you're basically just moving it around the body. So you never got rid of the sugar, so the sugar's all in there causing damage to your heart, damage to your kidneys, and so on. That's why you don't have any protection, end-organ damage protection. The newer medications are quite different. So you have a medication called an SGLT2 where you pee out the sugar. In fact, the blood sugar level doesn't change very much. It's actually a very, very weak drug. But then when you look at, say, heart attacks or heart failure, the rates are about 25% lower than if you took that medication. So the difference, what's the difference? Well, this drug actually gets rid of the sugar in your body, makes Mm. you pee it out. It's outside your body, you've gotten rid of it. As opposed to the older medications, which are just moving that sugar around. Sort of like if you have garbage and throw it out, you just throw it on the sink. So you're just moving it around. Well, that's fine. You can't see it. You think you're doing great, but it starts to smell. That's the problem. Same thing with when you're taking insulin for your blood sugar. You can't see that sugar because you forced it into a place that you can't see, which is you've shoved it into your body, you've shoved it into your liver. You can't see it anymore. So you think you're doing great, but you're not. What happens when you don't take the insulin? Well, all that sugar just comes right back out in the blood, Mm -hmm. right? So where did that sugar go? It just went into your body didn't get rid of it. When you stop taking insulin, where does the sugar come from? What comes from your body? You shoved it in there and it's just coming back out, right? So it's just like, think about a suitcase. You have too much clothes, but you shove more clothes in. You push it down with more force. What happens when you don't push it down? Push, Mm -hmm. right? Everything just going to push out. Did you solve the problem of not having enough room in the suitcase? No, not at all. You actually have to take the clothes out and put it away, Hmm. right? You have to get rid of that sugar from your system. And if you're not, it's not doing any good. So metformin, insulin, all these older drugs, they don't do anything for you. Newer ones do, in contrast. And that's why they're showing such benefits. With the newer ones that force the the kidneys to excrete them, is there um, potentially some issues with challenging the kidneys too much? Can it cause some kidney failure or kidney issues and complications? Uh, there's Yeah, there's side effects. So there's okay. uh, urinary tract infections, yeast infections, and then something called ketoacidosis, which is can be quite life-threatening actually, uh, but it's a side effect of the medication. Got it. Uh, so it has nothing to do with ketosis. It's actually a, a different mechanism. It's a, it's a problem with the kidneys getting rid of the acid. Yeah, yeah, correct. Okay. Now let's talk about fasting and then we'll get into the VIP Q&A. Uh, so VIP Q&A, make sure you get into the back end studio for this rare opportunity with the father of fasting. What are your favorite methods, schedules for fasting to really you know, force insulin down and, and uh, sensitize those insulin receptor sites? I know when we had Megan 
back in January, she really loved a 36-hour fast. Um, I don't know if you still are doing that, but what were, what are your favorite like go-to fasting schedules to drive down insulin? Yeah, so it's always a um, balance between sort of what can be done easily and what is the most effective. Because again, if you choose something that's too hard, you're not going to do it. So it's great to say, well, you should do like a seven-day fast. It's like, yes, except that it's hard and not that many people do it. Sort of like you should run a marathon. It's like, Mm -hmm. yeah, but you you have to build up to it. So it's it's always that combination. So, So there's no right or wrong answers. 16 is very good because uh, you know if you simply drop one meal, eat two meals a day instead of three meals a day, you're there. And that's something you can do very easily and do it almost every day. When you get to a 24-hour fast, like one meal a day, again, something that is relatively easy to do and could be done most days of the week. When you get to the 36-hour fast, again, not difficult because there's most of the time one meal where you don't have to. A little different, for example, if you have dinner every day with your family, right? Then it's going to be hard to do that 36-hour fast because you're going to have to sit there and not eat, which is hard. You're putting yourself in a situation to fail because there's food all around you, but you're not eating. And it's obvious that you're not eating. And everybody's like, what are you doing? So, you know, again... It's a great strategy. So the 36-hour fast, so for people who have done the shorter fast, it's not so easy from a social standpoint. So remember, these are social reasons why you can't do it. You can or can't do it. The reason the 36-hour fast, when you go the full day without eating, the reason it's so effective is because you're dropping. So say you go a 24-hour fast, you're eating one meal a day, you're eating dinner, right? You drop one meal, but your fasting time goes up by 50% because you're going up by 12 hours, right? Because you're dropping that meal, but then you're getting eight hours of sleep where you basically don't have to think about eating. So you're getting all that sort of free. In the meantime, your body's basically burning fat because you've gone through all of your glycogen and so on. So it's a very, very effective way to sort of supercharge it because you're increasing the amount of time that you're burning fat because that's where you're getting your energy from, right? At the same time, when you wake up, most of the time when you wake up, you will feel completely reset. That is, your hunger levels will basically reset to the same level as the day before. If you ate or if you didn't eat, you're going to feel pretty much the same when you wake up, which is very strange. And you know, it's strange to think about it's normal because you know I've done it and a lot of people have done it. But first few times you do it, it's just very strange because you expect that there's something going to be weird when you wake up the next day. Right. You wake up the next day and it's like, huh, very strange. I just feel exactly the same. Mm-hmm. So you could do another 36 if you want and, and it'll be the same. right? Or you could break your fast or whatever. But you know, you're spending more time in that fat-burning zone right? You're getting a lot more bang for your buck because you're adding on eight extra hours of sleep for free. And you're basically resetting yourself by the next morning that, you know, your, your body in the middle of the night, you're going to have this, you know, from the circadian rhythm, you're going to spike up your growth hormone, your mm-hmm. counter-regulatory hormones, your body's going to push out the glucose. So you use that energy and then all of a sudden you're sitting there. So for physiologic reasons, that 36-hour fast is actually quite an effective fast to be using. From social reasons, not super easy to, to, to go in there. But again, there's ways around that. If you join a group or if you have people who are understanding, that kind of thing, it can certainly, certainly work. Yeah, that's great. So yeah, the way we look at fasting is like a muscle, right? We, we build it up. I have a couple more questions, but we'll get to the VIP first. And if there's time, I'll get to some other questions. So I see in the back end studio, there's Buzzy, Linda, and Carol. So Buzzy, I'm going to bring you on here to ask Dr. Fung your question. But here are the rules. Uh, If you could ask your question in about 30 seconds or less, so we could be efficient and get through as many people as possible. So Dr. Fung, are you ready to answer some questions from the VIP students? Okay, here is Buzzy. Hi, Buzzy. Hi, Ben. I want to say thank you. This is my first time doing the Keto Camp Challenge. It's very exciting. Dr. Fang, I'm so happy to be able to uh, talk to you directly. I am a TFM member, and I've tried many, many times to say thank you for changing my life. Since joining about 10 months ago, I've lost 80 pounds and going, and I still have body weight to lose, and I've reversed diabetes. So the system works. Keto works. 
My question to you is, for people who, like me, have gotten to the ideal weight, quote unquote, but still have body fat, belly fat to lose, what do you recommend? Can it be done? Thank you so much. Well, thank you. And um, yeah, I think that it can be done. It's just a matter of uh, starting to look at some of the other issues. So you have to realize that So the biggest sort of problems are going to be the foods that you're eating and how often you're eating them. So those are fine. But there's actually a number of other things that you have to think about. Stress, movement, sleep, that kind of thing. So those also play a role in belly fat. So sometimes it's a matter of stress. And then you have to deal with that in a different way. That is, changing your diet doesn't change your stress. And you can't change the stress, but you can change how your body reacts to the stress. Mm. So things like meditation, like um, you know, exercise, those gratitude. things. Are, uh, yeah, gratitude, because you have to realize a lot of it comes down to your own, you know, the way you think, your attitude towards life. That actually determines your happiness more than wealth or any of these things, right? So you have to start to think about those issues, which are important. And then you also have to start thinking about other things because, you know, at the fasting method, um, you know, we do a lot of, we do a lot of thinking about other issues other than, you know, uh, low carb and uh, fasting, even though that's the sort of core of what we do. It's the same thing. There's so many things that go into it because it's not just about knowing, right? It's like cookies, right? You might know that you shouldn't eat cookies. It doesn't mean that you're not going to eat cookies, right? Because there are other reasons. There's so much in the environment. There's so much in the attitude. There's so much in your habits which determine it, right? If you have no access to cookies, then you're not going to eat them. That's as simple as that, right? So can you change your environment? Can you change your attitudes? Uh, Can you change the way you think about them? Can Can you swap out one habit for another habit? So those are all things that are important. So uh, not only the environmental issues, but also the emotional issues, food addictions, that kind of thing. And those are not things that you can just read a book or go on YouTube and figure out. And that's where the fasting method we try and focus on in terms of the coaching, in terms of the classes that we do. Um, Because again, we're trying to get to that deeper level uh, it's sort of the difference between, you know, alcohol, just don't drink alcohol, and going to Alcoholics Anonymous. Totally different. Same thing with Keto Camp, right? It's great to say, oh, just do keto. It's like, it's totally different when you're actually trying to do it and stay with it. You need the support of other people. That's just being human. There's nothing wrong with it. And that's why programs like this, like Keto Camp, are effective. You're trying to provide community, right? That's mm-hmm. really important. What your environment looks like, you know, eating in Japan, for example, all the portions are puny, like they're really small compared to the United True. States. <laughs> and that's just, you just get used to it after a while. But therefore, that environment makes you less likely to gain weight, right? Then you come here and all of a sudden, wow, these portions are massive. Or, or Costco, right? It's like, wow, these are, everything's Costco size, right? So there are ways, there, there are things to think about other than simple diets. And that's, that's where, you know, individual coaching can help, you know, communities can help and all these sort of things can help. So the last little bit is always the toughest because now you're getting into the sort of, you know, the low hanging fruits all done. Now you have to get into these sort of more important things. And, 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 and maybe it can, maybe it can't because sometimes your environment's just too difficult to change. Um, like, you know, the food environment in the United States you're not going to change that. I'm not going to change that. So is it going to play a role in your and my uh, weight? Yes, it will. But it's not something that we might, we're going to change easily or, or, or overnight. Yeah, well said. Thank you, uh, Buzzy, for the question. Congratulations to your kicking butt. I'm proud of you. So Linda, I'm going to bring you on here and ask Dr. Fung your question. Hey, Linda. Good morning. Thank you guys so much for this opportunity. It's amazing. I um, am a type 2 diabetic, and I have been for 35 years. I use an insulin pump and a CGM, so I always have my blood sugar available to me. But I find even when I'm in ketosis and I'm doing my diet and I'm not eating carbs, 
when I wake up in the morning, my blood sugar will be like 149 or 150. And with the pump, of course, it's pumping insulin into me all the time. And I don't know how to correct this. Yeah, so I don't, I don't control the pump. But I'll tell you that that high blood sugar in the morning is normal. Mm-hmm. It happens to everybody, but the effect is magnified in type 2 diabetes. So what happens is that when you sleep, and a lot of people get confused. They go, well, when I went to bed, my sugar was normal. When I woke up, it was high, right? And the question Mm -hmm. you have to ask yourself is, where did that sugar come from? Remember, so type 2 diabetes is a disease where your body has stored too much sugar. So if your sugar is high in the morning after you didn't eat and you went to sleep, where did that sugar come from? It just came from your own stores. So it's coming out. Because what happens in the morning at about 4 a.m. is that your body has a spike of certain hormones. Cortisol, growth hormone, they will spike up. And noradrenaline, it's getting your, your body ready for the day ahead. And basically, it's taking glucose from its stores and pushing it out into the blood. When you have too much glucose stored away, it's going to push more glucose out. And sometimes that pushes your glucose up into the high range. So it's not either good or bad, but it means that your, your, your body is pushing out too much. That insulin pump, what's it going to do? Well, it's going to shove all that sugar back into your body. Right. Is that the right thing? Well, unfortunately, I don't control it, so it's okay. But what it means is that you don't have to eat right away. You could let your body burn down that glucose because your body has too much energy. So is it normal? Yes, it's normal. So I wouldn't worry about that. What can you do about it? Well, if you have an insulin pump, you have to talk to somebody. Maybe it brings it down a little bit, but not all the way. And then you use your diet to go the rest of the way. Okay. Thank you, okay. Linda, for the question. Keep at it. You Thank got this, okay? You. I appreciate it. All right, we have time for one more. So here we go. Hey, Mickey. Great, Dr. Fung. Uh, thank you for doing this. Quick question. If you're doing a workout, uh, I play pickleball five, six days a week, you know, for like an hour and a half, two hours at a session. How does that work with the fasting and, you know, that rapid depletion of, I don't want to say calories, not that it's that great, but still. Yeah, so that's a great question. And uh, for the most part, your body will figure out where it's going to get its energy. So remember that your, your body stores glycogen, which is basically glucose. They take the glucose molecules, they stick it in a long chain. And you can take this glycogen, turn it back into glucose very quickly. And it's actually enough for most people if it's full of like 24 hours of energy. So you're you're, you're almost never going to exhaust your glycogen stores. Uh, The one time that you do see people exhausting their glycogen stores is when they're doing like marathons and stuff, Mm -hmm. right? And in fact, people didn't used to see it until they did triathlon. So you saw this in the early days of triathlon, they're doing the Ironman and stuff. And then at the very end, they would have this bonking, which is where they ran out of glycogen and they couldn't move. They had no energy. But that's after... (laughs) you know, a very long swim, like 200 kilometers of bicycling and a marathon. And they bonk at like, you know, the last part of their marathon. That's how much energy your body can store. So if you're not eating and you're playing pickleball or whatever, for the most part, unless you're like a, you know, world-class athlete, your body is going to figure out where it's going to get its energy. Remember that your body can use body fat. So body fat is triglycerides. And every tissue, basically, in the body, except your brain, can use fat for energy, triglycerides. So your liver can do that, your your kidney can do that, your muscles can do that. It can take fats, which is triglycerides, and use it directly for energy. You don't need to go in between glucose. Your body can use it directly. Your brain can't. So therefore, it make, you make ketones to cross the blood-brain barrier. There you go. Mickey, thank you. Good awesome. job. Thank you. I would also add one more thing, Mickey. Keep your electrolytes up right before and during your uh, pickleball. Dr. Fung, you have a new book coming out about intermittent fasting for women, correct? When is the release date for that? Yeah, that's actually Megan's book. So Megan has... Um, oh, okay, got uh, it. Yeah, so she, it's, it's basically a lot of her experience with fasting, but specifically with women because she works a lot and uh, that's sort of a passion uh, of hers. Um, Yeah, so that's coming out, I think, in June. So keep an eye out for that. 
Are you writing a new book? I, I don't have a new book coming out, but we do have a Diabetes Code journal that's coming out, which is uh, essentially uh, a companion to the Diabetes Code to try and get people provide tools for success, which includes sort of these journals. Journaling is a really great way to stay uh, on top of your eating for accountability, for mindfulness. It's, it's, it's very, very uh, useful for a lot of people. So there's a Diabetes Code Journal, which is a companion to the Diabetes Code for people trying to reverse their type 2 diabetes. It's, it's, it's I think, coming out in the next few months. Brilliant. Go check out The Fasting Method. It's thefastingmethod.com, at Dr. Jason Fung on Instagram, Dr. Jason Fung on YouTube as well. Dr. Fung, thank you so much. I love and appreciate you. I can't wait to see you in person again. Um, thank you for serving us and serving humanity. You could feel free to hop off and go about your day. We wanted to say thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you so much. And um, just one other thing. If, if you go on YouTube, I have a lot of videos. Over the last year or so, I have sort of put a lot of stuff on YouTube. I and the great that. thing about it, YouTube man. is it's all free and you can watch it whenever you want. And I can sort of cover topics. There's a couple... You know, there's a lot on fasting and then there for type 2 diabetes specifically, there's two that I thought were super interesting. I thought was interesting anyway, which is the effect of sort of vinegar and acidic foods on sort of blood glucose and also food order. So eating carbs first versus eating carbs last, you know, what the effect of that uh, is. And I think those two were sort of ideas I hadn't really covered before, but with uh, YouTube, it's interesting because then I can just put it out there and then uh, people can can watch it. But that was sort of relatively new information that I covered there with some some science uh, behind why those actually work and some studies. So uh, check those out. Check the YouTube channel out. I think there's a ton of information. And, you know, I put it into small bite-sized chunks, so hopefully that it's, it's easy to digest. <laughs> the YouTube channel is great. Well, Alina will grab those links and we'll put it in the live live stream chat. So thank you, Dr. Fung. Have a great day. We'll, we'll talk soon. Thank you, Ben. I hope you enjoyed that fun conversation with Dr. Fung. I love that guy. If you want to watch the video version of today's interview and all interviews, it's on our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash ketocamp. Please share this episode with somebody you know who has insulin resistance or PCOS or type 2 diabetes. Go get his books, The Obesity Code, The Diabetes Code, The Cancer Code, The PCOS Plan. We had his colleague, Megan Ramos, on the show last week. If you didn't listen to that, we discussed her brand new book about intermittent fasting for the women out there. So go listen to that episode as well. And go check out Dr. Fung's program, The Fasting Method, thefastingmethod.com. Please consider leaving the Keto Camp Podcast a rating and review. Thanks for listening. I'll see you on the next episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. Statements and views expressed on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Benazadi, disclaim responsibility from any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own. And this podcast does not accept responsibility of statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or non-direct interest in products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.